Welcome, you're listening to All Things Naval Aviation with your host, Rear Admiral John Meyer, Commander, Naval Air Force Atlantic. Welcome to All Things Naval Aviation. This is Rear Admiral John Meyer, Commander, Naval Air Force Atlantic, and today I'm joined by a very good friend, Matt Danahy. Uh, Matt, you've been a, uh, a, a close confidant while I was over at the Navy Warfare Development Command, and I enjoyed our conversation so much that I thought having you and inviting you to come speak today would just be a, a great opportunity. Just a, a little bit about Matt's background. Uh, probably the highlight of your career, I would think, Matt, was uh, the VAW VRC Commodore, uh, the Type Wing Command. You did that a few years ago and following that uh, on the OPNAV staff and then at the director of Navy Warfare Group. But you've been now at Navy Warfare Development Command uh, for a number of years. And uh, as the director of Navy Concepts, uh, welcome to all things Naval Aviation. Thank you, sir. Uh, It's a privilege to be on it, and I'm happy to be here. Well, uh, I wanted to try to replicate uh, one of the many conversations we had during my tenure. And for those in the audience, you know, it's really important, I think, to have creative thinkers in an organization and to have a sounding board for ideas. And Matt, you were, uh, you and your team were absolutely uh, leading that effort. So I wanted to talk about a couple of things. One is uh, right after I got there uh, or sh- around the time that I showed up at NWDC, the Navy released the uh, DMO, Distributed Maritime Operations Concept, which was really uh, spawned out of NWDC, or at least did the finishing touches on it. And I, I think it's very fair to say that you had a pretty loud voice in the development of that concept, you and your team. And I wonder if you can give us a little bit of a, an unclassified insight into that product. So, yes, sir. So DMO is kind of a look to the future. So Maybe I'll start quickly to say what a concept is, because you, you refer to ZMO concept. Concept is a visualization of future operation that describes how warfighters using, and this is key words, military art and science are expected to employ capabilities in the future and exploit future opportunities. And so what this is is a force-shaping tool. In other words, we're not just replacing th- things we have we're looking at what the future challenges are going to be and then how do we need to shape our force to meet those challenges using not just a science, you know, a tool, a platform, but also how we're going to apply it, the art, how we think, because we think that's a critical piece. So we came up with DMO. DMO looked at how do we, how do we look at what we envision the future fight, and, and we envisioned it against great peer competitors. So this is going to be different than what we've seen in the last – so many decades, and we're going to have to operate sea control again. And that's something that, you know, I know we're approaching our 245th anniversary of the United States Navy, but sea control is what the Navy has done as one of its primary functions, and DMO is a return to sea control. And, you know, there's many of us that have been in the Navy, but, you know, there's not many of us that did sea control, at least practiced it. I was I was young enough to come in when they still called the Soviet Union, and we actually talked and practiced sea control. But then we went into 
you know, the land campaigns of the last several decades, and we did the thing primarily power projection, and that's a different way of, of, of providing naval power. We need to kind of return to sea control, and DMO gets at that. And DMO looks at taking a distributive force that exploits integration of capabilities and maneuver in all domains to mass effect at the time and place of our choosing. It's fleet-centric. So if you're operating as a fleet and, and you're operating and maneuvering your forces at the time and place that you're choosing. And I think that's an enormously uh, important point that you made as far as how you set that up. Uh, not many of us are old enough to remember the those early days when we started flying where we, you know, we really worked towards sea power, long range power projection strikes. And many of the principles that were kind of going back to our roots and, and somewhat foundational, not just to our history and heritage as a Navy, but uh, really pulling that and advancing that into DMO and the technologies of the future. Yes, sir. I mean, you know, they used to call it the Blue Water Navy, and, uh, you know, we, we shied away from the littorals because that was viewed as, you know, an, uh, a contested area. And in the Blue Water, you were doing long range, you were maneuvering, difficult to find, hard to target, and you were constantly putting them back on their heels because these, math, these large forces were just maneuvering across and could come anywhere. And, and, and it goes back to the early days of World War II, when, you know, after we suffered the defeat in Pearl Harbor, you know, it had, you know, you couldn't do an attrition fight with a large, powerful enemy that we were facing in Japan. So it became a maneuver fight, maneuvering your forces, trying to pick a time and place that you're choosing to get him at your advantage and then basically, you know, shift the calculus, if you will. And I think we were really successful. And it's worth understanding that because – the thinking hasn't changed, the technology and the environment has, but we have to change the way we, we provide our, our force, if you will, to meet that future challenge. You know, it is exactly those concepts following Pearl Harbor that led to the raids immediately after Pearl Harbor. And really early in the Pacific theater, we relied on maneuver much, much more. Uh, later in the conflict, we operated more perhaps as we have over the last 20 years where we operated carriers in fixed positions, in locations, and as we saw off Okinawa, they became much more predictable in our operations, locations, and we made it too easy on our adversaries, and we suffered some pretty significant losses from kamikazes off Okinawa. Yeah, you, you raise a good point, sir. So we learned in the interwar period as we were doing these fleet battle problems, and we learned early on you had about three days be, you know, to, to maneuver your, your carriers in a location that was predictable. After three days, the enemy with his long-range fires, in this case these were land-based bombers, or their uh, submarines would be able to swarm and eventually pin down your maneuver force. So three days was kind of the number that we learned in the interwar period that you had to get out. And you could trace back to Guadalcanal, and there's a big debate on that and why Fletcher moved his forces out. Uh, you know, before all the forces were off, because he understood, based on his fleet battle problems and his knowledge of doctrine, that it was a matter of time before his forces were at risk. And being a maneuver force, anytime you you fix your force, you give the advantage to, to you know you, you're no longer maneuverable, and it's it, it's a it's a target that's easily taken. And we showed we lost many a carrier uh, in support. The Wasp was lost in the Guadalcanal and some others because we fixed our position. And you point out in Okinawa. 
I believe, if I remember right, in in Lady, as we were as we were going well in Okinawa and Lady, as we were fighting these larger forces, we got fixed in support of these land operations and allowed them to basically target and basically take away our maneuver, and that placed our forces at risk. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up Guadalcanal, and it really reminds me of one of my favorite World War II history books, and that is Neptune's Inferno by uh, James Hornfisher. Uh, and I tell you, I, I, you're getting my uh, blood flowing. I think I'm going to have to reread that book. Uh, we were really hanging on by a thread around Guadalcanal. We had overextended ourselves, and um, you're absolutely right about uh, the more fixed we were, the more we made it easier uh, for, at that time, a uh, numerically superior uh, adversary. I wanted to talk about um, another issue, and this is probably the area that uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the most while I was at NWDC, and that was the appetite for innovation or the culture for innovation that we had at NWDC. And we're absolutely trying to do that here at Air Lant, I would argue across Air Forces. Uh, I would tell you that naval aviation is founded in innovation. Uh, if you look at the earliest days, I mean, I've got a, a great uh, photo in my residence of Eugene Ely um, right around the time he took his first launch off of uh, an aircraft carrier. And uh, amazing to me is he's got uh, bicycle inner tubes wrapped uh, around his shoulders, kind of looks like uh, bandoleros. Uh, but that was the, the primitive flotation devices that they had at that time. Um, but that innovation and that innovative spirit that created naval aviation uh, led into the interwar period really resulted into the success that we had in World War II. I wonder if you can share some thoughts with our audience on creating an innovative culture and how you apply that in concept development and the work you do at NWDC. So, so I, I can't stress enough how you know you have to break away your your paradigms that you that you've been operating in. You know, I, I'm you know as you point out, I had prior Navy and and all those paradigms, and I understand the training and readiness and where it all comes from. But in a lot of cases, much like Eli had to sit there with the inner tube tires, you have to accept some risk of failure. You know, you have to try new things. And one of the things I think I struggle with, and I think most of us probably in the fleet struggle with, is finding the white space to do that. We have filled our day with so much important training and readiness and maintenance and things, and that all needs to get done. But if we don't find and carve out white space to kind of challenge ourselves, I don't think we're ever going to really get beyond what we currently do. And and there's opportunity. You know, in, in, when I was younger, one of the things we used to do was a pass-ex. When the aircraft carrier would relieve another one, the two or three days prior to that, you know, you didn't simulate red or you didn't – you simulated blue and he simulated blue. You brought all your capabilities and you were going to figure out and it was bragging rights to, to challenge that other that other strike group. We're trying to get that with the fleet battle problems, get beyond the script and just to kind of bring on to you don't have any constraint. How would you operate given your vast capabilities – you know, how would you operate against somebody who had equal capabilities? Because it's a different way of operating. You're going to force yourself to do things differently you hadn't thought before. And I think white space is probably the number one thing that I, I think we need to struggle with as a Navy. Yeah, I think you bring up a great point. And I, I think what you touch on is probably why 
I thoroughly enjoyed my time at NWDC so well. It was an opportunity to think critically, uh, to think creatively. I was enormously impressed with the, uh, the staff there, yourself, and as really as the rest of the staff. And it just afforded me a great opportunity to do a lot of professional development in that time. Uh, I can't agree with that point more. I think that uh, when we get kind of pulled into the weeds, our bandwidth gets filled with things. We're no longer thinking critically so much as we are reacting or going from one meeting to the next. And uh, I think that that's important. Your point about the PASX piece, though, I, I got to tell you, I love that. Because one of the other things that NWDC does is we spend a lot of time in the wargaming space. Now, we do war games not with operational units, but we do it more of a training piece, the operational level training uh, OLTEP uh, program. And that has advanced over the years. But what you just described, the PASX, that free play of allowing a carrier strike group commander to effectively challenge another carrier strike group commander but for bragging rights, but in a uh, essentially an unscripted, aside from the safety margins that we would want to have, blue-on-blue uh, blue kind of uh, engagement. Uh, I think that's something that we need to pursue to get back to as we really uh, continue to advance our, the levels of our COM2Xs. Uh, the wargaming that we've been doing has really, I think, had a rebirth here in the last, uh, probably the last five to ten years. We've seen just a huge rebirth in that. I can't say enough that the good ideas exist, and as leaders, in my opinion, we need to hunt for those good ideas. And, you know, there's someone who's got an idea, but at the end of the day, nobody asked him, and he's doing his day job. And, you know, if you don't ask him, if you don't go and hunt and have them speak up, you're going to miss out. Uh, you know, I remember uh, early in 2000, I want to say is the second Gulf War, there was the initial push and some of the initial operations were initially unsuccessful because the plan that had been established uh, to allow the, you know, to bring the close air support to the U.S. forces pushing north into Iraq wasn't in place, and immediately overnight it was JOs who said, hey, here's what we have to do. Phone calls were made, changes were made as the ATO was written, and all of a sudden forces were pushed forward that could enable, in this case they were E-2s, that could enable that process. But it was JOs, it was the WTIs are saying, this is what we need to do, leadership, and immediately getting that put in and moved forward, and it had an immediate effect the next day where we all of a sudden – Planes were not returning with ordnance. Planes were dropping ordnance in direct support. Yeah, those, those good ideas are out there. And while I certainly credit those JOs for having those good ideas, I would also tell you, and you, you'll agree with this, is it took an enlightened leader to say, you know what, that's a damn good idea. Let's do that. And it's these JOs came up with that idea. Not everybody... Uh, that you or I have run across over the years is quite that enlightened or empowering uh, to junior officers or to those with ideas that are maybe a little off the script or different. I, I, I agree, sir. I think uh, I think good leaders recognize that, and I think good leaders, uh, you know, need to to search for those because at the end of the day, you know, I, I refer I'm a, you know, I I work in concepts. I refer to myself as a good idea stealer. 
you know, I go out, there are good ideas in the fleet, and it's amazing how many units have the same good idea, and you can start to draw a thread. That starts to kind of, is there a problem and a concept involved in that? And then you gain a consensus Navy-wide on the approach. That becomes the concept that goes to CNO, and I'm, I'm, I'm serving up to our leadership an approach that will get at some of the problems that he's facing. Yeah, that's innovation in action is taking a thread from a good idea or maybe even most of that idea, but continuing to refine and polish that good idea. You know, as you describe that, I'm kind of reminded of Alexander Graham Bell, his great idea of the incandescent light bulb. Well, how many different materials did he use before he settled on the tungsten filament that actually gave us the incandescent light bulb that uh, basically lit uh, the world for so many years. And he had a vision, and he and he knew he was right. It was just a matter of getting there. Right, exactly. Uh, one other topic that I, I wanted to touch with on you uh, is about operational logistics. And, you know, the old adage that uh, amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics is so important, I think, to drive home. Um, you know, you and I as junior officers and probably up through the 04 grades uh, lived, uh, ate, and slept uh, tactics. But as we got more senior, we realized that there was so much more and that we couldn't employ those tactics. If we could get in position, uh, if we had the equipment to make our aircraft up, and uh, all those. I wonder if you can share your thoughts on that and maybe how that pertains to distributed maritime operations. Well, you, you, you kind of, you brought up Neptune and Inferno, and, I, and I've read the book, and, I, and I'm a huge fan of that book. And for those that haven't, please go out and read it. But as you read that book and you think of Guadalcanal and that tremendous fight that the Navy Marine Corps did for that six months, to me, in my mind as I read the book, that was a logistics fight. It was a race who could support those two armies, and the first one who was unable to support led to their withdrawal. And that was the that was the Cactus Air Force that was used during the day to keep resupply ships from coming down, forcing the Japanese to only come at night. But the night wasn't long enough for their slower logistics ships to come down without being attrited in the next day as they, as they returned. And that that Cactus Air Force, that that pounding of the logistics allowed the Marines to basically outlast an eventual withdrawal and the victory of that. So when we look at that Pacific fight, logistics is the key. And I think as we look at the new concepts and we started to look at logistics, for the last 20-some years we built a logistic posture that was peacetime and focused, just in time, efficient. You know, you know, you know, as a as the as the wing commander, you know, I knew how many engines were located on what ship and what engines available, and we had just the correct number of engines based on demand, which is rearward looking. But in the future, we're not. It's going to be a different kind of you know usage. We're going to operate you know 24 hour seven ops. We're going to operate a lot more sorties, but yet. Our posture is based on a peacetime demand signal, so we have to get into more of a push logistics, a more algorithms that predict when operations ramp up, the supply system is ramping up prior to that and start moving those key components forward. We have to get the ability to have these algorithms to accurately predict to say, you know, the you know when I when I'm about to have the first day of the war and I'm going to launch these long weapons. 
I don't need to wait until I fire the weapon to call back home to say, send more out here. They should be moving forward even before I pull the trigger. So the next day, the resupply ship's pulling up and I'm reloading. That's the kind of mindset we need to be able to do. That's kind of what we're trying to get at operational logistics is more of a forward-looking instead of a rearward uh, peacetime kind of uh, focus. Yeah, and that is exactly what the professionals that analyze distributed maritime operations are looking at is, you know, those strengths of the carrier strike group that we touched on earlier of maneuver. I mean, the fact that our carrier strike groups can move 700 plus miles in a 24 hour period, the increasing range and lethality of our ever advancing air wing and the weapons that those aircraft carry can hold huge areas of, of the surface uh, at risk. And over the course of a three-day period, just a staggering uh, volume of, of real estate, roughly the, the entire Pacific uh, AOR over a 72-hour period. But it is that logistics support train that is really the, the key part that makes that happen. Uh, less so fuel than it is ordnance, as you described, but the professionals and our supply core professionals, but not just them, uh, are heavily leaning into that. Another aspect of DMO that uh, we didn't touch on yet, and, and that is the inherently naval aspect of DMO. I would certainly say joint, uh, yes, but first, but before we get to the joint world, we really get into the naval aspect of this. And this is the partnership with our Marine Corps in DMO. Can you talk on that for a moment? So, so it's interesting. Is Based on my career, I've always tended to be an air wings ahead of Marine Squadron. And at the time, I didn't think much of it. I just assumed all air wings had a Marine Squadron. And then it took me some time to figure out that only four of the 10 uh, carrier-based air wings had Marines. And I found their value. They just looked at things differently. Uh, we were uh, in, you know, in Iraq and, you know, in would come the Marine who was the SAC in Fallujah last month to kind of give you kind of the lay of the land before you went forward. What a tremendous advantage was. They see things differently. And having Marines and having Marines look at the sea control fight is so empowering because they see things that you necessarily in your little paradigm don't. And it allows you to kind of get at the problem from multiple views understanding that it's just not a Navy fight or a Marine fight. It's naval, and land is key maritime terrain, and we need to understand what that terrain is and what capabilities they bring to bear and how do we leverage that. It's power projection where naval forces go and provide uh, power projection to land forces. This is land forces providing uh, support to the sea control, and that's something that we're getting at with DMO and EABO and some of these other concepts we're working yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head. When you say that Marines see things differently, what you're really, I think, talking about is the strength of diversity of opinions in how we engage adversaries and how we plan and how we develop concepts. You know, if it's a bunch of aviators uh, specific to uh, your community, if it's a bunch of E2 aviators sitting around, you're going to get a pretty good E2 aviator idea. But if you open that aperture to all aviation, to our surface uh, brethren that are in the strike groups, and then you pull the Marines in, and the Marines' uh, ability to turn on a dime as far as how they're restructuring their force uh, to support the EABO concept, wow, you now really uh, the, get just a, a whole wide array of options 
that really improve the lethality and create increasing dilemmas for potential adversaries in the future. Yes, sir. It, it's tough to be, when you talk all domain and you're talking bringing them all together, that's such a powerful thing and it's very difficult to break down. You know, because it's just you can you can influence one domain. You might be able to influence two, but to get all of them, I mean, you just it's just like trying to hit a balloon. I mean, you just it's always going to maneuver around you. So uh, yes, uh, you know, I think diversity of ideas is just is is can't be overstated. Whether it's community uh, within the Navy or it's outside the Navy, diversity of ideas is the key. Well, Matt, uh, I cannot thank you enough for joining us today at All Things Naval Aviation. This conversation uh, reminds me fondly of many a conversation like uh, this that we had when I was uh, the commander at NWDC. And uh, thank you so much for your time today and uh, wish you the, the best. And I know we'll be in touch uh, as well. So thank you again very much, Mr. Matthew Danahy, uh, Director of Concepts, Navy Warfare Development Command. Thank you very much, sir. Enjoyed our day. Oscar out.